The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are now about to take a journey with professional advisors Ken Smith and Ethan Brogut on Empirical Investing Radio. To connect with Empirical Investing Radio, please call 1-866-472-5790. Fasten your seatbelts. You're going to need them. Just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life. Good afternoon and welcome to Empirical Investing Radio. I'm Ken Smith, sitting next to Ethan. Good afternoon, Ethan. Hey, Ken. It's good to see you as usual. Good to be here. Got the beard neatly trimmed. Thank you very much. This show is designed to share with you prudent investing and financial planning advice, the likes of which we hope will help you make a lifetime of smarter financial decisions. Today on the show, Ethan, I thought we would pick up uh, where we left off last week. I promised we would cover... The paper put out by Vanguard, mm-hmm. I recall, uh, in just uh, January, uh, a couple months ago, the case for Vanguard Active Management solving the low cost top talent paradox. And uh, I know there was a, a few blogs and things written about it and what are the implications of it. And so I thought we'd just kind of walk through that today, talk a little bit about our view. We haven't talked in quite some time about passive versus active, what it means, mm-hmm. what the implications are. And as usual, I promised, hey, what are the practical application of, of, of this kind of research, this kind of data. Mm-hmm. Um, also, if then, if there if there's time after that, um, I had mentioned uh, the funds that are coming out on uh, that are low-volatility funds, claiming to be low-volatility funds, and whether or not that would be a reasonable strategy to incorporate into your investment. That'd be fantastic. That would be fantastic. That's pretty uh, good. Also, if you had some some stuff, Ethan, uh, I don't know if there'll be enough time. You know, if there's enough time, if we can um, fit it in, that'd be nice. But that's okay. okay. Either way, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, what was what was it that you have? Uh, just some discussion about the sequester stuff. Yeah, exactly. So now it's a little bit old news already. But okay. uh, last week we had some information about the sequester, uh, sequester and exactly what that is and so forth. But if we don't get to it, it wouldn't be the end of the world. Alrighty then. Before we do all of that, why don't you? Uh, Go ahead and give out our contact information and share a little bit about Empirical and how we can help listeners with their financial decision-making. Yeah, well, first of all, if you'd like to join the show, you can reach us via email at contact at empiradio.com or via phone at 866-472-5790. And if you're an individual investor out there looking for some help, perhaps a second opinion um, on your portfolio or maybe you're looking toward uh, retirement and want to put together a sound retirement plan, feel free to reach us here at the Empirical Towers directly at 206-923-3474. And feel free to ask for Ken or Ethan, preferably Ethan. I'd love to talk with you. It depends on what kind of answer you want. (laughs) Thank you very much. Just glad to be here. Well, then we, uh, on a side note, the uh, market is uh, 
continuing to do some very interesting and amazing things here. I think we broke through a, a, a historic high point. I've noticed that. <laughs> Man, he's fast enough to trigger today. I like it. He's a loose cannon, that's some <laughs> uh, Yeah, 14,329 today, uh, up 33.25 points. S&P up uh, 2.8, 1544.26. Interesting. It's Interesting. a new. Is this a new all-time high, right? I believe. I a believe fresh it, I all-time believe high is. in the Dow. Yeah, pretty remarkable. And uh, I think it's interesting because a lot of people um, are, uh, and I and I I can see why the tough times that we've gone through to get back to this point. I think there might be the temptation, Ethan, to mm-hmm. pull pull some money off the table, as it were. Um, I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, well, I think uh, you should always invest as appropriate for your long-term plan. So if you're currently in balance relative to your long-term plan, I don't wouldn't make a change. You wouldn't make that change like Michael Jackson. What does Michael Jackson have to do with no, I'm just kidding. No, I, I probably wouldn't. I, I, you were invested appropriately a year ago. You're invested appropriately now, I'm guessing. The you know, market hasn't increased that, that much in that last year. Maybe you could rebalance to your target allocation if you're significantly over. But normally... Um, you know, you should invest appropriately given your time frame, risk tolerance, and, and uh, usage for the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have short-term needs, boy, you probably shouldn't be in stocks anyway with that that money. So, well, that's a good thing to think about. Uh, the other thing would be to track the relative uh, the valuations of the various markets that you're invested in. Sure, I think when we reach new high points or new low points, I mean. Certainly, these are all times, if, if they're motivating you to do something, I would suggest you allow it to motivate you to re-examine your overall financial strategy. Look at your retirement plan. And if you've had above-average returns for a period of time, so say you started to build your plan five years ago um, and uh, you expected very poor returns, just for, for example, um, and you get better than expected results or better than average results. You know, it's an opportunity to take a look at your financial plan and say, hey, well, maybe going forward, I don't need to have as much risk in my portfolio because I've exceeded my expectation. I think a better analogy would be maybe if you were doing uh, investing in equities in the in the 90s mm-hmm. and you had experienced 17 to 18% a year returns in the, you know, in the S&P 500, right? Right. Rather than blindly um, taking those returns and extrapolating that indefinitely into the future forever, maybe it would be a reasonable thing to say, wow, I was only, you know, my financial planner put something like nine or 10, you know, eight to 10% maximum in my financial plan. We really got almost double that in the, in the last uh, decade, for example, Mm -hmm. maybe I should take a look at the risk um, parameters of my portfolio. And by nature of that, it might've, uh, you might have been more conservative, not because you're trying to time the market, but just simply because, hey, because we've doubled we've we've doubled the expected rate of return. I don't need to take as much equity risk going forward to accomplish all my goals. Sure, that's reasonable. Interestingly enough, Ethan, if you did that exercise when we went through a tough market time, because your return would likely be lower than what was put into the long-term average of the plan, mm-hmm. you'd be maintaining or increasing your equity position after the market has gone through some tough times. Sure. What would that have caused you to, to do? What do you mean? What do you mean? Um, well, I'm assuming it would 
it would have uh, been a situation where you uh, you're you're selling stocks after they've done significantly well, better than the market. Right. And you'd be right. buying stocks after they had done really poor at very low levels. Gotcha. So similar to rebalancing the portfolio, how would you naturally rebalance it if if you had a sixty forty allocation? Stocks went up fa- very fast. Mm-hmm. You might be selling stocks along the way. Yeah, sure. So uh, I was just being uh, uh, a little sarcastic there, but my my thing is be, hey, you'd be doing a lot better than what most people do, which is selling at bottoms a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. And taking up. Now what's happening is hey, some people might be tempted to say, hey, I need, I want to pull some money out of the market. Yep. Because we've hit this new point, I think it's going to go down, and it certainly may go down in the short term because in the short term it's all. Speculative fluctuation that we experience it right. has nothing to do with the long-term fundamentals um, of the market. When we talk Agreed. about day-to-day or month-to-month mm-hmm. or even in any one single year, it's a lot less attached to the long-term growth of the economy right. around the on a global basis. So I, I'm just saying rather than letting it motivate you to start uh, making significant changes first and asking questions later, let it motivate you to revisit. And if that revisiting of the financial plan led you to believe that hey I don't need to take as much equity risk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be a far better approach sure to adjusting your equity risk because your circumstances may have changed yeah. as well. I'd agree with that. Um, but let it motivate you to take that kind of and most people it motivates them to act f- first by selling securities or adjusting things and without even looking at or revisiting the context of their plan. I would agree. More right. more often than not there's a bit of a knee jerk reaction if you will. To current events, or um, you know, certainly feelings drive us to. Time for a little Michael Jackson break. Is that what's going on? Make a change. Isn't that what you were saying earlier? I think so. But I think more important, like you're saying, it's more more of in the context of your overall financial position is is what you should examine, not so much just hey, let's just sell some stocks because now we're reaching all time highs again. That may may not be necessary, or wise for that matter. For that matter. The matter, as it were. All right, Ethan. Any other comments about that? Well, not about that, but I didn't realize you had such a uh, exhaustive uh, Michael Jackson uh, library at your fingertips there. I do. That's great. I like Michael. Well, who yeah. doesn't like Michael? Yeah. It's a sad situation there. Okay. Um, moving right along. Uh, nothing... Nothing much uh, changed in interest rates, Ethan. I'm just kind of covering the market there and before yep. we dive into this Vanguard exercise. Um, so, you know, relatively low uh, interest rates still. Prime rate still 3.25. That's what it was last week. Mm-hmm. Five-year Treasury, 0.85. Ten years, uh, just under 2%, the 10-year Treasury. And uh, you've got uh, the five- and ten-year inflation-adjusted Treasuries at negative 1.37 on the five-year Negative 0.56 on the 10-year. Hmm. When you take those all together, you have a infl- break-even inflation rate of about 2.22% on the five-year. It just means that the way that these are priced, uh, we'd have to have inflation of around 2.22% for the uh, tips to equal out the return of the nominal treasury right now. And 2.55% on the 10-year. So the market at large is still... Uh, projecting reasonably low inflation over the next 10 years. Uh, That can change very quickly, but that's what's priced in right now. Yeah, I mean, the last 10 years, I think, has averaged about about the same, 2.5-ish or so. Um, So they're projecting the next 10 years to be the same. 
I find that, uh, I don't know. You find that interesting. A little surprising. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, over the last year, last uh, one-year return here, um, on the equity side now, it looks like the uh, top performer on our little hot list is the large U.S. Uh, large value, up now about 19.4% over the last uh, 12 months. Um, relative to the S&P's up about 14% over the last 12 months now. It's a rolling 12 months, not fiscal or year-end we're talking about. Wow, that's great. Uh, and interesting, the emerging markets is only up about 3.89, so they continue to kind of struggle behind. But uh, keep your eye on that, Ethan. Right. Keep your eyes peeled, my friend. Yeah, I was watching the uh, uh, the uh, 60 Minutes last night from Sunday, and mm-hmm. they were talking about uh, China's growth and sort of the real estate bubble or concern of a bubble over there and uh, the prospects of that leading to slower growth and, and so forth than expected anyway. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So it could be some of that in there. Uh, it looks like the value indices over the last yeah, again over the last rolling 12 months have done better than the growth indices in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And the IFA market, the IFA, the uh, developed international, has done quite well, 1482 so better than the U.S. Uh, the S&P over the last 12 months. So there you have it. Very good. Not a bad uh, period for stocks. So this article, Ethan, maybe I'll I'll set this up here in the last minute or two, and then we'll come at it full force in our second segment of the show. Uh, this idea, the case for Vanguard Active Management, solving the low-cost top talent paradox, and uh, their claim here is that there is strong theoretical and practical evidence that most actively managed equity funds will underperform their benchmarks. Uh, there's another paper, the case for indexing, so they provide uh, their own case for that. If you pull this article down, you can just Google it and you'll get it. For those of you who are listening and, uh, and or just go to Vanguard and pull it out of their archives, I'm sure they've got one where the papers are. I just Google it and got it downloaded it. Uh, it's about 28 pages or so, I think. And so they're saying, hey, to uh, some, this makes the use of active management seem like a fool's errand with little chance of long-term success. That's a position I think you and I have held for quite some time. Indeed. And yet many investors remain drawn to the prospects about performing a benchmark with active management. This uh, Apparently, counterintuitive situation leads investors to wonder if there's any concrete ways of increasing the probability of success with active management, and Vanguard's view is they believe there are. So we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, uh, we'll go through the the key findings of the paper. It's just a white paper that Vanguard wrote, and I want to identify various questions and concerns that I have with the research that they put into this, and also some things I might agree with. Mm -hmm. So let's take a quick break, Ethan, and we'll be right back on Empirical Investing Radio. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. 
or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we're back. Empirical Investing Radio. Your co-host here, uh, Ethan Brother, alongside Ken Smith, and apparently a line of some kind. You're a tiger, baby. That's right. Um, if you'd like to join the program uh, today, feel free to give us a call or shoot us an email. We can be reached at contact at empiradio.com or via phone at 866-472-5790. If you have any Michael Jackson requests, feel free to send those along as well. So, Ken, before the break, we're just about to dive into the heart of the matter here um, with this Vanguard study that was, I don't know, it's a study, I guess it was, but it's more of a white paper. It is a heart of the matter. And uh, we were just saying right before the break, or right during the break there, that uh, I'd be interested in seeing if this um, would pass sort of the, you know, the sniff test with the guys who, who um, publish things in, in the Financial Analyst Journal and so forth, where this can be more peer-reviewed rather than just a, a posting a white paper. You know, clearly those sorts of things have more... Um, more oomph behind them if they can kind of pass. Yeah, this is not an independent paper, right, right. so it's not been peer-reviewed uh, or that I'm aware of or have presented in the Journal of Finance or Journal right. of Wealth Management or Portfolio Management or any one of those other journals. Um, but it's a paper that uh, some of the guys that are on the Vanguard staff put together. Yeah. And so one of the things I think you're saying is, hey, before you would make any changes in your approach to investing, uh, if a company were to hand you a particular paper, you'd want to make sure that you do a little more research to, to say, hey, does this hold water Sure. You know, in the world of uh, independent research? Um, has anyone else done? And they do reference papers that have been done on, the, uh, uh, on their active, actively managed funds, even okay. because... The, the real thing with this is it's a commercial. Now, most people know Vanguard for its low-cost index ones, I think. And Bogle came out with sure. the first retail index. That was the S&P 500 for the general public to buy in in the late 70s. And I think that's what he has has made his mark in the industry. It hasn't been as much that in my career, the 17 years here, 
since I was in college, and that yeah, I haven't, you don't, I don't hear much about him being a maverick in the world of stock picking, right? right. Individual stock picking or, or yeah. trying to beat markets. Yeah, yeah. But Vanguard has an agenda, and their agenda is to sell mutual funds, um, right? Yeah. Sell their investment products. And even though they have a unique structure in which some of that structure is one and where they say, hey, the, the, the mutual fund uh, investors are also, you know, own the fund or uh, the people working there still have their own unique biases, right? And the fund, uh, the, the company in itself has at its heart a desire to grow. And so I sometimes give the Vanguard guy a little bit of pushback and say, well, it's funny because, um, you're out here doing sales for me. You're trying to get us, encourage us to buy your funds. Whatever. Who's paying for that? Because if the fund owner, right, if I was just buying a fund and it really was just the cost of the fund that I'm invested in, um, because that's something they like to say is, hey, we just run it at the cost of the fund and that's we're not here to make a profit. But the people working there are, right? They're not going, <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm here to donate my time. This is the charitable work yeah, I do in my free time. Back, I get right? back is I just show sure. up at Vanguard and run a portfolio mm-hmm. for free. They want to make and optimize their financial situation just like anyone else in the world does. No they want to get paid as much as possible, mm-hmm. I would assume. Otherwise, maybe we would want to have a talk with them about or do you have the best people running these funds, right? Because yeah. if they're going, hey, I'm just here for fun or I'm doing a non-paid internship, but I'm at the steering wheel of this fund. That would be interesting. No. Be a surprise. I've not heard that when I've talked to the various I'm sure people. That's, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And a lot of these guys are traveling around the country to meet with advisors or investors to sell Vanguard products. And who's paying for this travel? Is it free? Is the airline donating it? I, no. no. <laughs> so if I own the – because I own some Vanguard funds, right? Sure. And I don't need someone to come out and sell me them because I already know that I want to own the fund. So whatever portion of my expense it's going for these guys to fly around and try to get people to buy their funds, I would much rather have in a further reduction in the mutual fund. Um, but apparently there are some other benefits to growing Vanguard that outside of that single fund that I own. Mm-hmm. Um, or any of the other you know, advice, things that they're now offering and things like that. So there are some biases that you know that I don't think Vanguard's going to be forthcoming in discussing all of that. But I do appreciate the idea behind keeping costs down low, sure, and figuring out how to run uh, an investment company that uh, does attempt to put some certain things or slap the tables in the in the investors' favor. And that I think is something that uh, truly should be recognized in what Bogle did early on with the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's get back to this, though, Ethan. In this paper, we examined four key elements of active uh, equity management and its implementation at Vanguard. Now, what I find interesting, besides the Vanguard commercial here, is just their position or some of the the work on – we've talked about hundreds of, of those independent studies, but um, we'll get to on their view of the passive issue, the idea of indexing rather than buying stock pickers. Mm-hmm. So – uh, first, they're going to summarize extensive evidence that uh, most active managers are, are underperforming. Second, they look at uh, one of the most reliable quantitative indicators of future manager success, which they say is low cost, and highlight uh, the importance of the manager selection. And third, we describe Vanguard's distinctive strategy in selecting sub-advisors to manage our actively managed equity mutual funds. And finally, they document the fund's performance. 
we conclude that while there is no guarantee for selecting talented active managers, so that would be a very important sentence to focus on. We conclude that there is no guarantee for selecting talented active managers. A combination of quantitative and qualitative inputs can improve the average investor's experience. So implementing some of their criteria, they're saying, well, it could improve your experience. There's no guarantee it will, Ethan, mm-hmm. but it could. It's possible. Yeah, it's possible. Specifically, we find that low cost continues to be the most effective quantitative filter that has shown with some consistency to increase the odds of success. Uh, however, no quantitative factor alone can ensure outperformance. Here we go again. Uh, indeed, a rigorous and thoughtful qualitative manager selection process also must be present in combination with low cost to help achieve success. Finally, we show the positive excess returns generated by Vanguard using this approach over the past 30 years. In the end, we find that low-cost active talent can achieve our performance and that investors, to the extent they stick with the discipline approach, can be successful using actively managed funds, as long as they're Vanguard funds. That's <laughs> basically what's go- what they're saying. Exactly. Um, yeah. But I do find it interesting, their reiteration of research that they didn't do necessarily about how indexing works and some of the things. So let me continue, if that's okay. I think you should. A noted investor, Howard Marks of Oak Tree Capital Management, stated, quote, People should engage in active management only if they're convinced that A, pricing mistakes occur in markets that they're considering, and B, they are the managers they hire are capable of identifying those mistakes and taking advantage of them. Unless both apply, any time, effort, transaction costs, and management fees expended on active management will be wasted. It's a good quote. Nobel laureate. William Sharp demonstrated that the average actively managed dollar will underperform the average passive dollar mm-hmm. as the cost of active management, which include management fees and transaction costs, typically exceed those of passive. Despite this challenge, many investors believe they can identify above average active managers who will generate market beating returns. Now, here's statistics currently, Ethan, and I believe that they're probably accurate about this. Um, just Accessing the Morningstar database will give you this data. 75% of equity mutual fund assets are actively managed right now. I'll buy that. So all that means to you listening is that if of the mutual fund universe out there, you could pick index funds or you could pick funds that are categorized as active managers. They're out there trying to beat various benchmarks by picking stocks. 75% of the money is in those active funds. Mm -hmm. Um, there is a strong incentive to seek a small return advantage over the market, which compounded over the long term can lead to a meaningfully higher ending portfolio value. Of course, unlucky or unskilled active management can also lead to a meaningfully lower ending portfolio value. So over the past 20 years, Ethan, less than 25% of actively managed U.S. equity funds have outperformed their relevant style benchmarks. So you have 75% of the money out there trying to trying to beat the market, yet only 25% are actually have have experienced that outperformance. Okay. Uh, additionally, research has shown that the underperformance of active funds is relatively constant across various countries, market segments, and time periods. Why does this occur? The poor performance of active managers can be understood using the concept of the zero-sum game in financial markets. The zero-sum game explains that with any market, the holdings of all market participants 
aggregate to form that market. Again, that's that's a Bill Sharp thing. Mm-hmm. Therefore, every dollar of outperformance one investment investor achieves in the market is offset by a dollar of underperformance for the other investors in the market. This offsetting of gains and losses would appear to suggest an outperformance probability of 50%. So how many times have we said in our different presentations, Ethan, that, hey, if there weren't any expenses, on average, if you were just throwing darts around right, or randomly picking portfolios, you'd expect 50% of the managers to do better. Right. What we have is 25% that have done better over the last 20 years. Okay. Oh, less than that. Uh, you would expect statistically if there wasn't the fee drag, mm-hmm. right? That concept of having that 50% is explained here again by the fact that it assumes no transaction-related costs or taxes. But in reality, these costs can be significant. And they can reduce the returns of investors, what they realize over time. While both active and index funds are subject to cost, research shows that expense ratios for actively managed funds are typically higher. So, they charge an average right now, it says of large cap U.S. equities are average of about 8.87%, which is quite a, a bit lower than I think when I first got into this. Yeah, sure. Um, if that's what the average is for large U.S. equity funds, I think it was north of uh, 1% mm-hmm. uh, that. a few years back. Comparable index fund charges, which have also come down, they're saying is 0.17. And I think the fund we use in... Uh, just a general large cap blend is somewhere around, what, four basis points now? Yeah, 0.04. Um, another factor impeding the prospect of outperforming with active managers is a lack of persistence among top-performing managers. So it's long been stated that uh, past performance is not indicative of future results, but many investors are still tempted, Ethan, to select funds by recent performance. That's true. A uh, study done by Phillips in 2012 confirms that past performance is no more reliable than a coin flip in identifying active managers who will outperform in the future. It's probably less reliable. Not only in the past is past performance an unreliable predictor, but according to the significant research, most other quantitative, quantitative measures of fund attributes or performance, such as fund size, Morningstar star ratings, or active share, among others, are equally undependable when used to identify future outperformers. That is shocking. So this is the best part of the paper, actually, Ethan. What we just went through, if you threw the rest of it in the garbage can. <laughs> um, because all so far they've done is is recite the, the independent research right, we're exactly. talking about. Not their research. Mm-hmm. All they're doing is summarizing the, the research of others that's been out there. Yep. So in my view, it's the most credible of the paper, but it's also the most relevant and important part, yep. um, which is, hey, we got about 30 seconds here. The results of picking securities, and again, well, I've, I've said this all the time, but if you're picking individual stocks, you should be putting yourself right in the same group here. Don't fool yourself into believing that if you're just sitting there picking individual stocks, you're not one of the poor, unlucky managers out there. But uh, let's take a quick break, Ethan, and we'll we'll pick right back up on this all when right. we come back in Pericle Investing Radio. Thanks. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at one 800 923 
800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait, they just go for it. Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we're back at Empirical Investing Radio. Your host, Ethan Broga, alongside Ken Smith. Again, if you'd like to join the program today, feel free to give us a call or shoot us an email. We can be reached at contact at empiradio.com or at 866-472-5790. Hey, if you do, uh, even if you're listening to this on uh, replay, I'm uh, pulling it out of the archive, if you shoot us an email... At that uh, contact at empiradio.com. Mm-hmm. I will personally send you uh, one of the books that I have that's autographed um, by one of my favorite authors, Larry Swedro, that we have. I think it's the uh, top mistakes that even smart people make. I don't have a copy in here, but um, so it, you know, make it a good question. I'd love to have a question that um, you're dealing with with your financial situation and, and something that we could go ahead and cover on the program. We don't have to name names if you don't <laughs> want to be uh, named, but uh, it would be great if you could challenge us with the question that you're dealing with, financial decision. And it could be anything. You know, Maybe it's uh, some you've got an I, a 401k you've got and you have questions about that or you have uh, should you open a Roth, should you convert your... Ira to a Roth, do you have insurance questions of any kind? I don't know. Whatever you think, Ethan. Yeah, but, I think uh, anything, uh, you know, should you, pay, topical? should you pay off your 30% annual rate credit card? I know Susie Orman likes to spend a lot of time talking about that kind of stuff. and right. I think we could do it yeah, if, if we're we up to the challenge. If we need to. We can discuss that. Okay. All right. I'm positive we can come up with some good answers. All right. So we're talking about this Vanguard paper, Ethan. Um the case for Vanguard Active Management. And what I was saying is, the first section, they reiterate some of the research that's been done on the results of traditional active 
managers, those out there trying to beat the market or mm-hmm. outsmart the market. Mm-hmm. And you would expect a 50% chance, um, there'd be 50% odds that, that randomly, if you were just constructing portfolios, Ethan, against another person, and there was only two of you in the market, and the two of you owned all the stocks in the market. Between the two of us. Right. Uh-huh. It's about should be about 50-50 odds that one of you is going to beat the aggregate, right? And one of you will, by an equal amount, underperform. Um, what would affect that, as presented here in another research, would be, well, what if you both imposed a lot of cost to engage in this game? So I said, hey, for you to play the, for both of you to play the game, you're going to have to give me 1% just to be in the game. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you could accept, each of you could just give me, instead of 1%, uh, one-tenth of a percent, and just own the whole aggregate index of the market. So the choices that you and Simon are playing this game together, and I could say, hey, if you win, Ethan, to Simon's detriment, you know, maybe he only gets a 5% return, you get a 15% return. Mm-hmm. The market did 10%, right? Um, but the killer on that is that, hey, to play, where I'm going to deduct 1% from both of you. Or you can both accept the market average return of 10%, and I'm only going to deduct one-tenth of a percent out of it. Right. So that's what the game where everyone's playing here. So in order for you to win, if you guys want to play the active game, mm-hmm. Simon's going to have to lose. Yeah. Um, you both lose together, though, because the total of your return will be less than if you both just took took the market portfolio minus the one-tenth percent. Right. Does that make sense? I think it does. Do you like that? It's interesting. It's an interesting proposition, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Now, if you're a heavy gambler, you don't care. You might not care, you know, and you say, hey, I'm going to go for it. Right. might be more important for you just to rub Simon's nose in it, right? That opportunity. Might be. Probably than, not, uh, Then you care about your own money, you know, <laughs> the real odds are. Right. Okay, so... That's why we're seeing that that 25% have beat it. But then it's identifying the second layer of difficulty here is identifying who is, if I'm on the sidelines betting now and I'm going to let you or Simon manage my money because now I've decided I want to be in that game. Uh How am I going to identify whether you're going to beat Simon? Should I give you both IQ tests? Hmm? I don't know that would help. Should I give you a puzzle? But should I put you in a room with some monkeys and see who who outsmarts the monkeys? What are we going to do? There's any number of ways you could slice it up, okay. but I don't know that any of them are, are predictors of future results. Hmm. All right. I mean, it's, you know, how do you identify the winners? Well, that's what we're going to get to next in the article. It's, oh, so now we're moving excellent. into Vanguard's view of improving the odds of active management success. Many investors search for quantitative silver bullet uh the quantitative silver bullet that would enable them to always identify talented managers in advance. In this ongoing search for the perfect metric, many overlook a very good metric that can improve the odds of success when selecting an actively managed mutual fund, the expense ratio. Now, this seems very intuitive to me, Ethan. That's not shocking Um, at all. What they found, and this is nothing new, I mean, Bogle's book, I think it was Common Sense on Mutual Funds that I read probably 10 years plus ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things he talked about was their examination of the correlation between the expense ratio in a mutual fund and its uh, likelihood of outperforming its peers or um, achieving success. Now, the lowest cost funds, so what Vanguard did in this, and I'll summarize, Ethan, is they took... um, different time periods, the last 10, 15, 20, and 25 years, and they said, hey, let's, uh, on one side of the graph, let's put the percentage of funds that are outperforming their index, and on the right 
side of the graph, we're going to put what the, where what their um, where they fit in terms of being expensive or cheap relative to the other peers. So, in, if you're in the 100th percentile of expense, that means you're in the you're in the most expensive group of funds. Okay. If you're in the 10th percentile, it means you are in the bottom 10 percent in terms of expense. You're really cheap. Okay. And what you see here is if we just look at the last 20 year line as as a uh, as a one because it has a pretty stark. Uh, difference there that over the last 20 years, if you are in the most expensive category, you are between 20 and 25 percent uh, success rate of beating the market, um, which is, I guess, about the overall success rate that they cite over the last 30 years. If though you were in the bottom 10 percent of expenses, you were getting close to 40 percent uh, success rate. Still, and, and so again, here I'm about to say you can just take the rest of this paper and toss it in the trash. Because these are all active managers here. Right. Yeah, okay. Um, you're still not breaching the 50% mark of success. And, right. and, and, it, and it gets worse if you use, look at some of the different time periods. If it's the last uh, 10 years, 15 years, or 25 uh, uh, years even, um, it, your, your, your increase in success being a lower cost is even lower. So it's that 20 years that, that gives you the greatest chance, and you still don't crack the 40% success rate. Yeah, it's a, that's a, a, 40, a 60% failure rate. So Vanguard's proposition is that's why you should just buy our funds because we're in that lower cost category. Mm-hmm. My response to that would be, well, you're kind of missing the bigger picture here. You're taking a piece of data and going, well, if you are going to buy, you know, even if you're committed to losing your money, you might as well lose a little less. And, and take this approach, right? Because if you do, at least you won't, you know, you won't, you you won't lose as much, or or you know, your odds slightly go up of doing a little bit better. Mm-hmm. But what, why wouldn't we be having a discussion saying why would why why does seventy five percent of the people want to lose their money? <laughs> I think that's the, the the issue that we should address. You know, is why is it that. And I don't think it's all because I think a lot of these guys like to write about how it's because everyone has this hope, hope springs eternal, and every. I think part of it is a lot of people don't know this research. They are more and more because that wasn't seventy seventy five percent is active, but even ten years ago, I think it was closer to ninety percent of the money was inactive. Mm-hmm. So the active guys have been losing ground. Yeah, no doubt. Um, as the research has, I mean, in, in nineteen seventy seven, right prior to that, it was zero. Of the, of the yeah. retail investors that were so, it's odd that it's taken us this long to get to twenty five percent. I would agree, zero to twenty five, and in, in a thirty plus year period of time, right? Uh, it seems odd from our perspective, but obviously there's a lot of uh, people who have the opposite incentive to That's promote right. that idea. That's right. So they lay out this relationship that the that even in the active funds if you segment them by expenses that hey there's this relationship we can we can do a better job of identifying a greater chance of success by simply organizing these monkeys basically by which monkeys charge more mm-hmm. which monkeys don't charge more. yeah yeah um, but it doesn't it doesn't get me to want to put my money with act, you know um, an active person just because i know now, if I was going to play that game, it just the the concept of it proves to me why you wouldn't do it. Because basically, if that's the correlation, then you're saying, well, it's not the skill difference, right? Right. Which immediately then 
to me, knocks the legs out of the active argument, which is, hey, you got to find the right guy who knows what he's doing. Yeah, that's the whole idea. Their, their, their statement at the very beginning of this thing, right, was talking about, um, yeah, we conclude that while there is no guarantee for selecting talented active managers, you can end it right there. Right. There's no, if there's no active manager, no, no talented active managers, then what's the point of the whole, this whole, whole idea? That's my point, is that, you know, it's a funny exercise, I guess, if you're sold on active, but I don't know how you could read that and continue to be sold on. What I'm taking away, just jumping out of the page here is, wow, I, no offense to Vanguard, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't review Vanguard's fund and I'm questioning why are they running active management funds? I'm not reading the same conclusion. They, they know these odds themselves. They're the put up in the paper. Why are they continuing to run active funds? Right, right. At a 40% success rate by the cost. Now, they would argue that their funds as a group have added some value. Um, but I take issue with some of the, some of the ways that they're measuring that. I don't know if we're going to have time. Um, I don't know if there'll be enough time. <laughs> but, uh, but if we do, Ethan, um, we're going to get to that. And so that, that's, I'm going to skip through the expense because that's basically it. And now they say, well, okay, expense is one of the biggest things that improve your results. The next thing is identifying talent. So how can managers or investors, uh, I'm sorry, how can investors identify talented managers? Uh, while there's been a plethora of academic studies that offer shortcuts for identifying a skilled active manager, much of the industry has settled on using some variation of the four P's cited by Vanguard founder Jack Bogle in 1984, which were people, philosophy, portfolio, and performance. Vanguard still uses a similar version of these today. Well timed, Simon. So they have as performance drivers the firm, you know, is their culture of investment excellence and stewardship? Is the firm financially stable and viable, Ethan? The people, are the key investors experienced, talented, and passionate? Like you, Ethan, you're very passionate. Mm-hmm. You can see it in your eyes. Do they have the courage to have a differentiated view, but the humility to correct a mistake? Philosophy. I don't know how you get to the bottom of that. <laughs> what is going on here, man? <laughs> Who, what list is this? This is Vanguard. This blows this my mind. Picking the fund, the managers that they're the sub-advisors that they use to manage your money. It's extremely sub- subjective here. Does the firm have a clear flow? And they admit that it's very subjective, but they believe it works. Okay. Um, does the firm have a clear philosophy on how it seeks to add value? So what's the philosophy that is universally shared by the investment personnel? The process, do they have a competitive advantage enabling it to execute the process well and consistently over time? Can the process be effectively implemented? Uh, and outcomes do the portfolio and performance do the historical portfolio holdings and characteristics align with their philosophy and process and performance given its process are the drivers of historical performance logic this is killing me is it killing you this is ridiculous oh no, I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad we're going through it. I'm not saying oh, what okay. you're talking. I'm saying that I can't believe this is the listening the, to me isn't killing you. No, that's not what I mean. No, it's I mean, these issues. This, these issues, like these are the key uh, identifying key talent. This is how we're going to do it. This sounds like every other active manager out there that or, or mutual fund that I've seen. Right? This is this is the kind of stuff they're doing. It's very subjective, at least to the underperformance results that we see in the mutual fund data. Well, yeah, we've got to take a quick break. So hold that thought. All right, make that change, and we'll be right back on uh, Pericle Investing Radio. One second. Well, not one second. In a few. All right. All right. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. 
Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we're back. Uh, Empirical Investing Radio. This is our, I believe, our last segment for the day. So I'll wrap things up here pretty quickly. But if you'd like to join the program, uh, one last time, give it, give us a call or shoot us an email at contact at empiradio.com or radio eight six six four seven two five seven nine zero. Okay, give us a buzz, but uh, we probably won't pick up. We're very busy here. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. Not true at all. Uh, okay. I mean, we're busy, but not that we would pick up. Uh, but we'd love to talk to you offline, actually, about these and many other topics. And uh, I think we would be able to add a significant amount of value, Ethan. No doubt about it. Okay. So we were we were just talking about Vanguard's uh, criteria. They've they've laid out that the number one thing that you could do to try to improve your results, but you still won't beat the market, but to try to beat the would be the, organize your picks by the expense ratios of active managers. Um, yeah. Conveniently, they do fit in that lower cost category, and then secondary to that, um, now we're talking about well, how do you identify talent? Because they already said it's a very difficult thing to do, but they've identified these what they're calling performance drivers, and they openly admit that uh, it says right here one might ask if uh, that if these factors are truly effective, why is the overall success rate of using active managers not been higher? Two reasons: first, the application of these factors remains subjective; it's not formulaic. Perfect. Oh. And the human judgment and robustness of the evaluation process can vary widely. Agreed. Second, although there are six factors, the most crucial intersection here is obtaining top talent, the top dogs, those managers who have the skill to outperform at a low cost. And solving that paradox, my friend, it's not easy. I see. Indeed. Hang on, other, real quick. Real quick. Okay, so what good. they're saying is that hey, there are managers out there that, that are top talent and really can outperform, but they cost so much. That you can't get them. Well, your your friend Ken French at Dartmouth, right? He he wrote a paper about identifying uh, skill and luck or whatever in uh, mutual fund performance. Yeah. I forgot the exact title of the paper, 
but uh, won't take wouldn't take you long to find it. Sure. And what he said is, hey, there are some really smart people who have figured out at one particular period of time how to be, you know, we're able to get performance, and we can't explain it by uh, just luck that we would call it some alpha, which is this, hey, there was return yeah, above okay. where there. But the problem is, over time, they tend to suck that extra return out and extra costs. They raise the management fee, or they leave the fund to go start a hedge fund because that's where they can really become rich with the track record that they built off of. Right, right. Um, so it's very hard and very elusive to try to get stay on top of those managers, and not to mention that the other idea that's um, your friend Charles Ellis wrote about in Winning the Loser's Game, which is, hey. There's been a huge shift in terms of um, informational dissemination, right? Mm-hmm. And, and what what institutions and individuals are facing in terms of competition to outperform markets. It's 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 much harder. That you see that the, the that other studies, skill versus luck, that mm-hmm. a number of them has gone down. Um, that are generating that alpha because it's it's getting harder because information trading is so fast uh, to compete with one another to get that outperformance edge. But go ahead. All right, I hear you. You hear what I'm saying? I think so. Uh, it doesn't mean that there isn't great advice. I'm, I'm suggesting that guys like you are adding enormous amount of value in, in putting time into getting the structure for each investor's portfolio correct and the enormous amount of planning that can be done on the financial side to reduce taxes or to yeah. protect your assets or to make smart uh, decisions in terms of estate planning and, and uh, taxation and all those different things. Uh, alone could could outweigh what the typical we said's 87 base points or the average global portfolio of active funds would probably be one and a half percent. I'm I'm still gonna say, which would include all these areas that we think you should invest in small and emerging and yeah, yeah. high and mm-hmm. all that stuff's probably closer to one and a half. You could pay that to a mutual fund company or you could hire someone like you, pay less than that on average for the total investments, get better results, but also you're getting. Um, some of that back in the way of all the planning strategy, where none of these managers, including Vanguard funds, call you up and say, hey, it's time to convert your Roth. Yeah. Um, we're going to save an enormous amount of money over your lifetime, right. maybe into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, they're too busy. All Everybody's busy arguing about you know the investment stuff um, to deal with all of that, which in a lot of cases is where the a lot of value from your advisor should come from. No doubt. All right, let's move on. Let's proceed. Okay. So uh, they go through their their reasoning in each of those those um, criteria, Ethan, why they believe that they have an edge over other managers um, in terms of evaluating the uh, their their sub managers' experience. So you know the firm, the people, the philosophy, and all that. Um, they just kind of go through because I don't want to. We don't have time, and it's boring anyway. Okay. But they go through why they think that they can do a better job of that than other active managers can. Um, I, I can't. There's no way to quantify that. You know, like you said, other than hey, they try to present their results, and then that's where they get to is gauging Vanguard performance, and they show. Um, they go back to 1982, and they break it into some 10-year chunks of time, so 82 to 92. And for that 10-year period of time, they they do t- they do three analyses, Heath, and they, um, they say, well, if you have invested in every actively managed Vanguard fund that existed back in 1982, and you just put your money equally across them, um, how well did they do relative to the benchmarks? 
So the first thing is, I don't know what the benchmarks are because they don't provide that data in this paper. So I don't know how... Um, really? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure. I guess there is some uh, some notation. I didn't go through all the fine print on here. But they don't lay it out that way. They don't show you the funds, for example, and then, hey, what, what did we... Uh, actually, they do. I'm sorry. It's at the very end. There's an Appendix A. And they do show a benchmark or spliced benchmark. So what I would need to do then is to make sure that those benchmarks make sense for the fund over their period of time, okay. if there's been any style drift. And I think that's the part I wasn't sure about. They didn't they didn't mention in what I read about that. But they show an underperformance of the Vanguard equally weighted portfolio of about uh, 15 basis points a year for the 10-year period, that first 10-year period. So you would have underperformed the benchmarks. Um, if they do an asset-weighted, and I guess their methodology that with the asset-weighted was whatever dollar amounts we have in each particular fund, mm-hmm. um, say one fund had 50% and the other you know, 20 funds made up the rest, they would, put, they would weight it as if you bought the funds that way. Very few people would actually ever do it that way, but yeah. that it kind of makes some sense as one of the options. And that one was about 0.06 positive, so six one-hundredths of a percent. Um, they're showing as added value. Then they said market proportional, um, which is another way of doing it, just saying, hey, of the funds that we're ha- we are investing in, mm-hmm. how are they, um, you know, what percentage of the market or how are they? So if it's S&P, that's a pretty big chunk of the market versus a small cap fund, right? Yeah, yeah. So they just organized them that way, and then they came up with about a negative 0.01. Mm, okay. The next 10 years, they wind up with positives across all three, and then they uh, – that's 92 to 2002, and then 2002 to 12, they come up with positives again. And if you average the entire period um, and you do their equally weighted fund approach, you get about a 0.35% return per year above the, I guess, equally weighted benchmark portfolio. So a couple of things. That's not a lot, Ethan. I mean, it's three-tenths of a percent. Um, and they show in the, another graph um, – oh, you know what, Ethan? I guess we're out of time. No, no, really? Yeah. All right. Well, I I do want to finish this point. So next week, let's start with the end of this, and then we'll move on to our other topics. Thanks for tuning in to Empirical Investing Radio, and uh, we'll see you next week. We hope you've enjoyed Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. Please join us again next Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And for more information about Empirical Investing Radio, please call 800-923-4307. We'll see you next week. 